Welcome to Upthinking Finance, a podcast that offers a unique and discerning view of economics and financial planning. Here is your host, Emerson Fersh. Welcome back to another edition of Upthinking Finance. I'm Emerson Fersh. The desire of gold is not for gold. It is for the means of freedom and benefit. Ralph Waldo Emerson. Now, anyone listening to this podcast here in the early part of 2023, I think would agree that there is a lot in the world that just doesn't make any sense. And there's a lot of confusion, particularly in the financial world right now. And as a result, uncertainty, of course, breeds concern and concern typically leads to conversations about gold. And the question I have for people is, what do we really understand about it? I mean, I know it's soft and malleable and shiny. It's, I think, number 79 on the uh, periodic table of the elements. But beyond that, why is this an asset that people see as having value? And why is it in particularly in times of fear, you might say, or at least, again, uncertainty that people are drawn to to want to inquire about it? Well, today's guest is going to enlighten us. His name is Max Belmont. He's a senior research analyst with First Eagle Management, covering precious metals and aerospace and defense. Prior to joining the firm in April of 2014, Max worked at TradeStar Capital as an equities trader. In 2010, he joined the private wealth division of Merrill Lynch in New York, where he spent three years as a general investment associate covering global equities. More recently, he served as an analyst at U.S. Trust within the Investment Solutions Group. Max is a graduate of Neuertingen Geislingen University in Germany, where he earned his Master's of Science in International Finance with honors. In addition, he holds the Chartered Financial Analyst CFA designation. So it's my pleasure to welcome from Midtown Manhattan, New York City, my guest today, Max Belmont. Max, welcome to Upthinking Finance. Thank you, Emerson. It's a pleasure to be with you and also with your clients. Thank you. So I guess the first place to start, and I know when we had a little chat before I shared you about how I like to find out why people are drawn to certain aspects of the finance world, particularly asset management. I got to ask you, what drew you to gold versus just being another guy that's evaluating large cap value stocks? <laughs> I'll tell you this, and you may be surprised, but it was not an act of definite purpose. And to walk you through, I first had my first feeling and my first exposure to stocks in the late 90s in the dot-com boom and bust. And I saw obviously my account balance go into stratosphere and as a young boy or like an innocent investor afterwards vanish and disappear, go just up and poof. And I just asked myself, is there another way to actually analyze these companies and these businesses? And invariably you start looking into value investing or you start to analyze the businesses which which is a path that i pursued afterwards also in, from an educational background so fast forward to looking and reading upon value investors and also in particular jean-marie vr being one of them there was an opportunity that opened up at first eagle and it was for gold so i just took it. I had an open mind. I was curious. And I said, that it seems to have worked for Jean-Marie for a certain period of time. Why not actually analyze and bring together gold mining or precious metals mining and value investing? And that is really how I stumbled upon it. And that was almost a decade ago, so like almost nine years minus a month. So I started First Eagle in March of 2014. So just for whatever it's worth, that's not a unique story in terms of <laughs> 
I mean, I could show you how I got into this industry, but it was really just kind of volunteering for an opportunity that came up when I was a teller at a savings and loan back in the 80s. And it just, life has its path. So, well, let me ask you this then, because I think this is an interesting question. And that is, what exactly do you do when you're managing a precious metal? I mean, like I said, I mean, gold itself doesn't have earnings. It's more price driven than anything. But I guess for you, there's a little more to it than just watching it go up and down every day. Absolutely. And you're absolutely right. There can be a lot of short-term volatility in the price of gold. But from what I do here is, so the output of our research is one company at a time. Because while I do not analyze the price of gold and the variables that affect it, because it's quite spurious to make a suggestion and look into the future whether the price of gold may clear in half a year's time or a year's time or five years' time. What we do is, and what I in particular do is, I do a lot of research. And I do a lot of research on the mining entities, on the gold mining entities. And this is not different from other businesses that you analyze. It requires no pun intended that you dig very deep and turn a lot of rocks, <laughs> but you read annual reports, you read quarterly reports, you meet with management teams, you peruse the earnings transcripts. You actually also go and visit mines, which is a very interesting aspect of this sector because you go where the mines are, not where you, they should be, right? So, and they're usually in very remote locations spread out around the globe. So. It is still a lot of analysis. There is a lot of like uh, diligence and it is really the pursuit to always build a mosaic, if you will, a mosaic that validates or negates your investment thesis, because that's what it comes down to. You have an investment thesis and depending on your information, you assess the likelihood of that material impact on the company. And so you just build out and you learn as you go on that. So what I do on a daily basis, and I do not speak to you or the clients is really go through these reports and really try to understand what can go wrong in the business and if the business is viable in the long so term. So let's dig into that a little bit because... I mean, there's a couple things I guess I would ask. One is, I'm assuming the world of gold miners has got to be a, a limited universe. I mean, again, it's not like you're investing in a, a U.S. stocks, some all-cap fund where literally the Wilshire 5000, I don't know, is that still around anymore? Anyway, you've got this endless choice of companies. I mean, it's a limited scope. Is that right? It is absolutely a limited scope. And it may surprise you that I'm going to share this with you, but because usually people are quite, yeah, like astonished by this fact of how much gold there is in the world. So since we like dug out gold and like we found gold, like as jewelry and graveyards and as rituals as, as long as three, four thousand years ago. But do you know that all the gold that has ever been mined and it sits in above ground stock, meaning whether it's jewelry, whether it's with central banks as part of public money or private money, which means with clients of First Eagle or other entities out the ETFs and so forth. Do you know that all the gold that has been mined is sub 210,000 metric tons? That's the weight of it. So it's 209,000 metric tons, very like close to that. When you imagine that, how big that would be, like what is the volume of that weight? Do you play tennis, Emerson? I try. I'll try. Okay. <laughs> but you know a tennis court, you know a baseline yeah. of a tennis court to a baseline of a tennis court, which is yeah. around a little bit over 70 feet, actually closer to 78 feet. That's a cube. Build a cube from a baseline of a tennis court to a baseline of a tennis court. It's a cube. So it's the same length 
on each side, so height and depth. But that's all the gold that has ever been mined. It's actually 73 feet, a cube, like a length of 73 feet, which is, again, close to a tennis court. It's a little bit smaller, but let's just say it's a tennis court. So it's an asset, what I wanted to convey to you, it's an asset that it's from a periodic table. And like looking at the periodic table, it's very simple. It's very dense, but it's also very scarce. So it's always in limited supply. It's an enduring asset as well because all the gold that has been mined still sits in above ground inventory. So right in jewelry or others, and it doesn't rust or tarnish compared to other base metals. And it also doesn't get consumed. So the industry overall, and if you look over the last like 120 years, the mining supply grew per annum between like 1.6 to 1.7% per annum which is similar to population growth over this time. So you basically have gold being a constant on a per capita basis. And you're absolutely right, because I sometimes say that God is a sloth when it comes to creating gold. And some of these deposits are very, very old. So it takes a long time to create these deposits and it's getting harder to mine them as well because they're becoming deeper. The grades are going down. So the whole gold industry as of right now, I can tell you is around 500 billion. If you look at the market cap of like of all the miners in aggregate, and there are a lot of miners out there, but there are a lot of also exploration companies out there that are rather small. But so from a numbers perspective, there are a lot, but from a market capitalization perspective or enterprise value, they're relatively, it's a small industry. So, okay. Here's a question then. Again, I'm comparing to stocks because that's kind of what everybody's familiar with. But you have a retail company. Their value is obviously going to be driven by sales and revenues, and that could be impacted by macro factors like inflation and monetary policy and all that. What drives the profitability of a mining company? I mean, are there macro factors? Because on one hand, I could see based on what you said, it would be more of just a consistent We have a job to do and we're going to keep doing it, which is digging because it's like you said, a scarce resource. So I guess that's really the question. Are there macro factors that impact the value of the company itself? Yes, because the macro factors affect the gold price. So what a gold miner cannot do is it cannot set the price of gold. The price of gold is set by the market. So because it's a homogeneous asset, And an ounce of gold of a certain purity is an ounce of gold of that 99.99% purity. What you will find is that they are price takers. So the only thing that miners can do is work on the cost structure throughout the cycle, right? Their costs. Their costs, exactly. Okay. And a big part of that costs are labor, consumables, and energy. So basically... The ebbs and flows of production, I suppose, would be tied to how much the oil costs to run the machinery. Is that kind of what you're explaining? Does that sound right? So the cost structure, that's like, that's the variable and fixed cost structure of a miner. Yes. The top line will be affected by A, how much the miner produces, how many ounces the miner produces. And that is a function of the throughput, the grade and the recovery rate. So three variables in here. And let me explain to you what it means. The throughput is, in very simple terms, think about, well, I'm going to say this, like think about the ice cream scoop. You dig it up. How much can you dig up? Can you dig up a million tons or can you dig up two million tons? Makes a difference. 
at what grade do you dig it up? Because the grade will inherently fluctuate. The grade in deposits is never also never homogeneous. There are areas that are higher grade, then there are areas that are lower grade and there are transitional areas. Sometimes you actually have to remove overburden or waste in order to get again to like an area that has gold in it. Depending on, again, if it's an underground mine or an open pit, I was talking right now about open pit because in an underground mine, just think about that you're following some veins and like the easiest way is to think about the veins on your forearm and you're just following those veins and you're just going after those and everything else you leave behind because you don't need that sometimes, right? If it's a real underground vein structure. So these are the three variables. And then from the mass that you actually like the throughput and the grade that you put through the mill, the mill sometimes doesn't recover 100% of the gold. So you have a loss in there as well. And think about a mill basically as pulverizing your rocks. It crushes your rocks and makes almost like a very flower-like texture out of it. Like, so you break down the rock from like boulders and you have it literally that you, it's dust that you create almost dust with it. And then you extract it like through various chemical processes and you get the gold. But say you were expecting Again, for simplicity's sake and hypothetically say you were expecting a million ounces in that deposit, but sometimes you can only recover 900,000 because some of it just goes, gets lost in the whole process. So that's the top line. And the top line, depending on how many ounces, at what price, because the gold price fluctuates through, through time, even though for the last 50 years, it increased in real terms, but it had periods such as 80s and 90s where it was going just flat. So you have those moments and that's what drives the revenue line. The cost line, again, is something that the miner does and depends on, as I said, on labor consumables and energy. So these are the factors that play ultimately into the free cash flow generation of a miner when you look at it from the outside. So is it right to say that those labor costs and operating costs are fairly manageable. Is that a, I wouldn't call it a fixed variable, but certainly one that's controllable. Is that fair? Yeah, I think it's an accurate statement, but I would also suggest like you should think about labor as going up on like an inflationary basis on a year over year. Some of these mines are actually unionized. So you'll see like a mid single digit cost inflationary aspect in there. But also remember that it's very important, and this is one benefit of owning miners, that you are also insulated against the cost increases because while you sell gold in US dollar terms, your cost structure may be in a different currency than US dollars. So you may have South African rent, Canadian dollars, Australian dollars, Mexican peso, Argentine peso, you actually have that cost structure in the currency where the miner is located. And it also depends clearly what the dominant cost structure is there, because sometimes miners like have some contracts in US dollars, sometimes not, depending on where they are in the world. So it gets a little bit more complex than just like black and white, but that's the beauty of it. Yeah, no, this is really good. And I appreciate it because you also see where I mean, my friend Alex Craner in Monaco, he's a friend of mine that he actually was my first interview on this podcast about a year ago, and he's a futures trader, but he always refers to investment, regardless of where you're putting money, as speculation. That's just, I think that's a word he uses. And you can see that I don't think most people, I know I wasn't until you explained it, really understand the level of variables 
that go into this whole process. Because at the end of the day, really all this work, the management, the current, you're still ultimately relying on a market that's, your net profit is still really completely out of your control. I mean, in terms of what the value of what you've pulled out of the ground and refined and all of that. I mean, right? It's still, that's a big unknown. It is a big unknown. Absolutely. It is a big unknown, but like, that's why I would also highlight to you. Uh, it's very important if you do this to be in low cost producers. It's kind of like when value investors talk about earnings power in mining, that's being a low cost producer or a resilient business because you can withstand the fluctuations that are inherent in the business and that you cannot forecast because I think you have to approach it with a sense of humility that it's just, you don't know the future and the future is uncertain and everyone loves an increasing price of gold, but you need to account for the fact that also the opposite may happen at certain points in time. And this is what I appreciate about, I've had a chance to talk to a few what I'll call non-mainstream portfolio managers. I hear it just in your explaining this, there is a passion. You appreciate, like when you bring up humility, that's not something that normally comes up in an average conversation. It's just pretty much black and white, what's on the reports, what's going on. I mean, it just seems like, but I like that you appreciate and respect if that's the right way to put it, the work you're doing and the fact that there is an unknown element. I don't know. It just makes sense to me while you're explaining it. So here's a question then. Well, actually, one more thing on this topic, because this is really good. Are there periods of time, and I can use my side of the desk as an example, but you mentioned the, the late 90s. <laughs> and I call it the easy period. It was easy to make money, and then it was really easy to lose it. But it also drew into the business a lot of I mean, I don't know if there's a nice way to say it, wannabes, people that say, oh, you know, I'm going to be a financial advisor because, you know what I mean? It's like you throw a dart at the board in those days and everything was going up. In the drilling, I guess the mining world is what I should say, is there an element to that too? Because you mentioned you get these resilient companies that have been through these cycles. Does it tend to draw it in periods of prices going up? A lot of startups that sort of looking to come in and make an easy buck, and that then is a part of what you've got to kind of work through and filter through in your research? No, absolutely. I think, yeah. I mean, I guess that's the not nail a unique thing. It's not a unique thing, I guess. In easy times, you, you see a lot of things come in. But I think that the beauty about it is that you need to really sift through it. And when it comes to a development asset, you need to really like understand what you have in the ground. And sometimes because you want to own businesses that are producing some free cash flow and are located in jurisdictions where mining is widely accepted, right? And if you have an exploration company, it's a business plan with a piece of land. And it takes a long time, Emerson, to bring that mine into production. Not only does it take time to get all the permits, the regulatory approvals, the social approvals, the environmental approvals, but you also need to make sure you have a workforce, you build it, like, and that's usually a large upfront payment. It's like it's upfront capex. And then you basically like build the mine and then for a certain amount of time you produce and hopefully you generate free cash flow throughout this time at the prevailing gold price. So you need to really like dig deep and make sure that when you invest in these businesses, these businesses are going to be resilient and have a going concern in like five, 10 years. I think like what I want to convey to you is the a long-term thinking. Like don't think so much about it like the next quarter. Think about where's the business in five to 10 years time? Is this a, like a viable proposition? Okay, yes. Is this a resilient business? Can I actually as a value investor underwrite it at a margin of safety? 
If it ticks a lot of these boxes, does it have a good management team? Click. You actually may be on the right side of that that trade. But again, think about it long term rather than short term. Which good advice that pretty much always works across the board, no matter what you're doing, I think. So how about this? Just you mentioned too. So you have these miners and they're obviously pulling up, I guess in my simple layman's terms, below grade product. Is like the non 99.99% pure. Is there a place for metals that don't meet the standard, so to speak? speak? I mean, is that stuff just, or is that just considered, it's just waste? No, not at all. Like basically like maybe I should have been a little bit more clear. It goes through like the mill and then it goes to the refiner and the refiner ultimately purifies it. So sometimes like you have gold and silver together in the bar and then you send it to the refiner and the refiner separates those two elements, so to speak, from each other and creates pure gold and pure silver. So Every miner that produces, produces gold at the end of the day, but through the chemical process, it gets purified. So it's a matter of, okay, I get it. So effectively, the less pure that comes out of the ground, the more work it is to get it to where you need it to be. And that's where the cost is. Is that right? No, like the gold is still there. Again. Okay. We're going to figure this out because I want to understand it. (laughs) Yes. So let's assume like you have a certain throughput, like in tonnage. You have a certain grade, which is a grade per ton. So again, grade per tonnage. And then you have a recovery rate. And that gives you how many pure gold ounces you get from that mine. Now, the mine can be sometimes polymetallic, which means sometimes it's not just a gold mine, but sometimes it can be gold with silver. It can be gold, silver, lead, and zinc. It can be gold and copper. Think about the largest gold mine in the world, Freeport's Grassberg mine, is not a gold mine, but is a copper mine because it produces so much copper. But at the same time, it has also a sleeve of gold. And because it's such a big mine, it's actually considered a copper mine, but effectively, it's also a very extremely large gold mine in the world. So, but no matter what comes out of that mine, so for instance, like copper and gold, it is 100% pure copper and gold. And like later on, it gets fabricated like into jewelry of like 24 carat will be 100% gold. But sometimes you have jewelry of like 18 carats or depending on 12 carats, which would mean 50% gold or 75 or depending on what you want to do with it. Because you, gold itself is very malleable and very soft, Emerson. So you need to actually harden it. And that's why you sometimes put a little bit of alloys in it to kind of make it a little bit stronger and rather than like just the pure gold. But you can also eat it. As you know, it comes like on those chocolate ganache tart. You can add like some gold leaves on top. Okay. No, that makes sense. So that's perfect. Thanks for explaining that. So shifting gears, and I don't know, these are my words, and you can tell me if this is right. My observation in the time in the industry that gold is a bit of a polarizing asset. I used to subscribe to an investment coach who literally just anytime the subject would come up in sort of mainstream press for whatever reason, he was the first one to just shoot it down as a complete, it's not investment, doesn't produce an income. I'm talking about the metal versus companies. And then you have the other extreme, which is kind of the apocalyptic crowd, where as kind of the times we live in now, I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty. I started the intro with that. It seems to be drawn to it. So do you find challenges in being in, in sort of a sector that gets pulled to extremes? Does that have any impact on anything you do? Or is that just noise on the outside of the work you do on a day-to-day basis? So I would say it is partial noise 
on from what we do on a day-to-day basis. But I think you're absolutely right that it is a polarizing asset. I think the opportunity here, rather than a challenge, I would say, is to educate people on the merits of the investment class overall, because I think that is a little bit still like out there in the dark and people do not understand or think about gold. Some people consider it a commodity. Some people consider it a currency. Where does it fall in? What is it? It's just an element on the periodic table. The earliest exposure that I had to gold was like only for my mother that loved jewelry. There was nothing else then. Like, so there was the only thing there. And such things like I'm going to highlight to you a book that was very instrumental for my thinking, which is The Golden Constant by Roy Yastram. And in it, Roy looks at the purchasing power of gold. He looks at the purchasing power of gold versus a fixed basket of goods. And he does that from 1560 England. So UK 1560 to 2007. And he also does it like in the United States from the 1800s to also to the same date. And what is very interesting is that throughout this time, and you had this time, you had currency devaluations, you had wars, you had hyperinflationary environments, you had, I mean, you had quite a tumultuous time. What he found was that gold maintained its purchasing power. Now there was a paradigm shift, like gold maintains its purchasing power and did very well in a deflation because it was effectively money till 1971 because it was fixed, like, right? Before 1971, an ounce of gold would be fixed at $35 an ounce. And after 1971, after Nixon, like he lifted that gold window and gold started trading freely, so to speak. So pre-1971, gold did very well in deflationary periods. And after that, it did very well in inflationary periods. But nevertheless, throughout time is that you could like swap an ounce of gold to an equal amount of goods. And even like in the gold space, you hear sometimes people say that an ounce of gold would have bought you a nice suit in London a hundred years ago as it does today. And what gold at 1850 US dollars an ounce, I would assume, yes, you can buy a very nice suit with that. And so it through very long periods of time, it maintained that aspect. So purchasing power is a very important aspect, not only purchasing power. It's also the fact that what I mentioned before to you, that gold is the paradoxically like the uselessness of gold as a commodity makes it useful as an anchor and in diversification in one's portfolio. So what do I mean by that? Gold is correctly a non-productive asset, right? You bring it up and it doesn't have a yield or it doesn't generate any of that unless you invest, as you correctly pointed out, through the miner. But I would make the argument that gold shouldn't have a yield because either you own gold or you don't. You don't have a counterparty in gold. Think about it. Either you own the gold bar or you don't own the gold bar. There's no counterparty risk. And because gold is... Once it has been lifted out of the ground and extracted from the ground, if you really think about it, it's free and clear of mining risks. It is a 100% EBITDA margin with a fade of zero. So it's a business that will last forever, right? So in a thousand years from now, if we exchange an ounce of gold or if you have an ounce of gold, in a thousand years from now, no matter where that ounce is, whether it's at the bottom of the ocean or whether it's somewhere buried up or still in your house, it will still be the same ounce of gold, the same weight, the same purity. It didn't rust, tarnish, 
waste. It's still that tangible asset. You may need some investment in your house to keep it up the way it looks today, but the ounce of gold will be still that ounce of gold. I've never heard that, but yeah, you're right. Because at the end of the day, you own a stock or any security in a company, you still have, if the company goes broke, <laughs> you're either a creditor hoping to get paid back if you had a bond, and if you're a stockholder, you're out of luck. I've never heard that. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yes. And remember also that gold is also not denominated in any currency, right? So let's say you own bonds. Well, you are dependent on the solvency and the willing ability and willingness of that government or company to make you whole. Well, gold is not denominated in any currency. You can trade and you can exchange gold in any currency there is in anywhere you want in the world. So it is outside the financial system because it doesn't have a counterparty. It's an enduring asset, right? And also very important because it doesn't fluctuate and it's not useful and it doesn't get consumed. Emerson, it doesn't fluctuate with a business cycle. Because think about it. If the economy is doing well, say the economy is booming. Well, your commodities like think about iron ore for iron ore, the PGMs, the platinum group metals or oil, copper, they will all fluctuate with the economy. Gold has just limited industrial uses and only a high single digit of gold goes every single year to industrial demand. And that still includes some dentistry. So while all your computers and like electronics may have a minuscule amount of gold, in aggregate, it's a very small amount, like around like seven to eight percent. And that's been declining. So it is something that is that doesn't fluctuate or what I would call here doesn't have a systemic beta, like doesn't have like doesn't fluctuate with the business cycle. It just goes in a way through it. Right. And behaves unlike all the other or many of the other asset classes. So, yeah, that actually explains a number of things, um, <laughs> what you said. But at a minimum, it's completely non-correlated, not just in a broader way than just simply with moving with markets. I mean, there's a whole layers to that. That's really interesting. See, this is the kind of things I don't think most people are aware of. So I really appreciate you explaining it like that. So you mentioned a point about owning physical gold. Where does the argument, and I don't understand it really, and I imagine you can explain it between owning paper gold. Sometimes you hear this thing that paper gold versus physical gold. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a very good question. And so let me start with physical because everything like that's the source, if you want to say so. Physical gold is the source because paper gold is a derivative of that. And when you think about physical gold, remember there is just a certain and a finite amount of physical gold, but there is the gold market itself is much larger. Think about like almost like a fractional banking system, right? So like the bank where you have your money at has a certain amount of reserves, but if everyone would like to get their reserves at a certain point in time, there would be a run on the bank. And that's kind of like how you should think about the gold market, because there's just a finite amount of physical gold in the system, because most of it goes towards central banks, jewelry or ETFs. But when you start with the physical market, think about allocated accounts, which means these are accounts where you have own custody and you own the gold and it is written in your name because you can have allocated or unallocated accounts, which means you can lend it out to someone else. And then if something happens in the system, the question becomes who effectively is the owner of that physical asset? 
So think about allocated accounts. Think about it that it's highly liquid. And as I said before, physical gold is not denominated in any currency. However, you need to also take into consideration some, some transport, storage costs, and even insurance is a very important factor of that. So as an institution, it's quite easy to, and like it may be doable to maneuver these waters. But if you're a single investor and like a smaller investor, it may be sometimes a little bit cumbersome because you're dealing, say you want to buy like an ounce of gold and how do you do it? So you go to like a dealer, you pay a commission, you sometimes have to pay a sales tax, and then you have to consider also like security considerations, where you're storing it and so forth. And then try to sell the same ounce back to the dealer because he will take another commission on it as well. So it may become a little bit like for the small investor, it may become a little bit more cumbersome to navigate this process, but nevertheless, it is doable. Now, paper gold tries to remove some of these constraints, right? Because it is effectively having exposure to the gold market without having to possess the physical bullion. Even though the ETFs hold bullion in allocated accounts, or like such as the GLD, but you cannot take really delivery on that gold from the ETF and say, I would like to take my gold now in my own custody and store it wherever I want. So it becomes a little bit more difficult, but it's a cost effective way for a smaller investor, also an investor that maybe doesn't have all the financial means to acquire exposure to gold through that, through these vehicles that are ultimately, again, derivatives of the price of gold at the end of the day. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. Yeah, that's good. So we've got a little bit of time left. I guess the question I'd ask, and you mentioned earlier something I heard from a PM up in with a company called Resolve Asset Management up in, they're based in Canada, Toronto, because we were talking about just these, I'll call it the inflation hedge sector to just kind of be broader, but how you alluded to performance, it's not something you look at quarterly and certain types of assets move they don't move like the stock market. You know, most people are kind of used to the four years up and the one year down and the stock market always goes up and they're not used to the idea of holding something that could be flat for 10 years. And so there's an education component, rightly said, that needs to be incorporated to understand where these types of positions can fit. So the question in all this is, is as a portfolio manager of an asset that falls in kind of that category of non-traditional movement, which you explained for a lot of really understandable, I mean, it makes sense. The equity investor manager is going to get bonused, I'm guessing, on their performance relative to some benchmark. So my question to you is, how do you measure success as a portfolio manager? I'd say personally, because I don't want to get into company and stuff, but just what makes you feel like, okay, I've accomplished something productive today? I mean, you know what I'm asking? I'm just kind of curious what kind of drives you and how you measure your success in the sector you're in. No, it's a very good question and it's a thoughtful question because you have to have that like discussion with yourself and like that kind of responsibility to clarity to answer this question. And what I would say personally, how I would frame this is you measure success by obsessively focusing on the preservation of capital in real terms. And what do I mean by that? You want to preserve the hard earned capital that you clients not only entrusted you with, but potentially you entrusted also with us. 
And you want to make sure that throughout the cycle, you're on the right side of the coin. And the cycle like sometimes takes a long period of time, right? So you can't think about it like in a quarter or two quarters, but you have to have a multi-year or decade long like prison, like see it like for the long term. But what you want to avoid is at all costs, and this is important, like you want to avoid the impairment of capital, the permanent impairment of capital. Like things may go wrong and you can still thrive in this business. I mean, like at points I pitched like stocks that didn't turn out the way I like I hope like the businesses weren't exactly like what I expected them to be. And when I bought them or when I tried to like being an analyst on it. But I think for all of this, like just avoid the permanent impairment of capital in real terms, because that is crucial to the clients and to my, and actually I think like as philosophically as a company, we think the same way. No, that's great. We got a couple minutes. I just had a thought come into my mind that I think would be a good way to end this. You mentioned research and going out to mines. Is there any, and I don't know if you can share this, so if not, we'll cut this out, but is there any particular research trip that really just impacted you when you were out exploring, doing the field research, anything that really just you remember that comes to mind that's something you feel compelled to share? Oh, absolutely. I'll share. Uh, I think every mining trip is unique, Emerson, because every mining trip takes you to a different environment, a different mine. No, like all the mines are different. The geology is different. The culture is different. And everyone stands out in their own way. Like literally every mine has unique characteristics that shape you as a person because you see like how precious this is and like how little there is because I'm going to share with you, you know what the reserve grade is or how much gold there is in a ton of dirt? Just wild guess. It's... I wouldn't even know what to say. (laughs) That's why you're here. Help me. I'll help you out. (laughs) All right. I'll help you out. It's a little bit above one gram. So in other words, it takes you like over 30 tons of dirt, 30 tons, three zero tons of dirt to create an ounce of gold, which is 30 plus grams, which is like as big as like literally this big. So it is a very scarce asset or gold is tangible, but it's very scarce. So embodies these like these aspects. But to answer your question, because I'm delving a little like I took a little bit of a parallel, I'll share with you like one mine that we visited as a team. And that was a mine in South Africa. It is a mine that is the deepest mine in the world. And you take elevators down and you go almost two miles into the earth's crust. You drop two miles down to get there. And in order to get to the faces, and a mining face is where they actually drill for the gold and where they're pursuing the veins, the vein structure. Think about it again, like, as I told you, like follow the veins on your forearm or some vein structure like that. You also are taking a ski lift because like there is so much infrastructure sometimes over like hundreds of miles of underground infrastructure that in order for you to get where you actually need to extract the gold they built like an underground ski lift to make it easier and faster for you to get there so taking a ski lift underground like at two miles depth like to get to two miles depth underground was certainly a memorable experience so let me put like let me let me tell you that that's not something that everyone can boast like at a dinner table like what you do the other day (laughs) 
Yeah, you know what? See, that's where at the company retreat, you have the best stories that no equity guy's ever going to get. No one can match yeah, that. Like, yeah, That's I great. I didn't visit like a mall or anything of that. Yeah. No, I like, you will realize that on the ground there because of the pressure, geotechnical pressure, like the crust, you hear like it cracking everywhere because there are a lot of earthquakes every single day on the ground that are very small on the Richter, but because it's like the pressure. And I remember like someone telling me when you don't hear the cracks, that's when you're in trouble. <laughs> I'm like, all right, but you like, you have like all the security measures. But again, it's one of those things where you're, where you appreciate gold and you appreciate it in a different light for what we as humans are doing to actually extract ounces of gold from the earth's crust. No, that's fascinating. And I'll tell you what, there's kind of a life lesson in that because those kind of experiences you don't generally get following kind of the blueprinted path, whatever you're doing in life. I don't mean to get philosophical, but particularly in this business, I don't know what it is, but guys, people like you that are, I won't call it fringe because that's disrespectful, but certainly on the non-mainstream sectors and seem to just have a kind of a different view of what they do. And I really appreciate it. There's kind of a, I don't know the word, but there's a bit of a nobility about it or just a real respect that goes just beyond numbers. And I think that's been kind of a theme in this podcast as I've talked to people is it's a career and it's work, but there's also what you just described. I think that's great. So Max, I really appreciate the time. This was a great conversation. And I think anybody that listens to this is really going to come away with not only a better understanding, but I think, as you mentioned, a real appreciation for the sector and really what it's all about beyond just some kind of a scorched earth position you take when you think the world's coming to an end. And anyway, I just want to thank you, Max, for appearing with me today on Upthinking Finance. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Emerson. Pleasure to be here. Thank Thank you. Emerson Fersh is a registered representative with and securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. Advisor services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and separate entity from Capital Investment Advisors. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. The guest speakers and the companies they represent are not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial or Capital Investment Advisors. Individual tax and legal matters should be discussed with your tax or legal expert. Economic forecasts set forth may not develop as predicted, and there can be no guarantee that strategies promoted will be successful. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. There is no assurance that the techniques and strategies discussed are suitable for all investors or will yield positive outcomes. The purchase of certain securities may be required to affect some of the strategies. Investing involves risks, including possible loss of principal.